I'd like to welcome everybody to the Hebraic Heritage Ministries Yeshiva Discipleship Program. This session, we are going to be doing the second teaching in the series on Passover. In this session, we are going to be speaking on the subject and examining the events of Passover. We need to remember that Passover itself is referred to as the Festival of Freedom because this is the festival that celebrates the liberation from Egypt, which is a type of the world and the world system and the God of Israel redeeming his people with signs, wonders, and miracles and made them a free people that can serve him and keep his commandments. In studying the biblical festivals and in studying Passover, we need to keep in mind four very important principles of the Egyptian redemption. Number one, it is a historical event. Number two, there is a biblical principle that the events which happened to the patriarch are not only history, but they are prophecies of what will happen to their future descendants. Therefore, the events of the historical Egyptian redemption are actually prophecies of what will happen in the end of days. And this is what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and verse 11. Next, the Egyptian redemption will teach us about the Messiah and his redemptive role. Fourthly, the Egyptian redemption will teach us about our personal redemption in Yeshua the Messiah. So as we're studying Passover, we're going to examine it in the context of these principles. We need to remember that the Bible explains to us that it is actually Yeshua the Messiah who made a covenant with Abraham. The way that we can see this is in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. In verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, it says, I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. And what we want to cross-reference is this phrase, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Psalm chapter 72, in verse 1, it says, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness unto the king's son. Who is the king? It is God the Father. Who is his son? It is Yeshua the Messiah. By what is said about him, we can see that this actually is referring to Yeshua on the deeper level and understanding of the text. In Psalm 72, verse 2, it says, He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with judgment. Who is that speaking of? Yeshua the Messiah. Now, in Psalm 72, verse 17, it says, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. And all nations shall call him blessed. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, All families are blessed in Abraham, here in Psalm 72, it says all families are blessed in Yeshua the Messiah. How is that the case? Because they're in covenant relationship with each other. 
Now, to further be able to see this, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. In the Hebrew, Almighty God is El Shaddai. Now, let's cross-reference the one that's appearing to Abraham and making a covenant with him, who was referred to as El Shaddai in Genesis 17, verse 1. And let's cross-reference that with Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, which says, Behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, and if I'm speaking in Hebrew, I would say I'm the Aleph and the Tav. The beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. The one that is the Alpha, the Omega, is also the Almighty. If I'm referring this back to Hebrew, I would be saying he is El Shaddai. And speaking about Yeshua and describing him in Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it is said of him that he is El Shaddai. El Shaddai, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, is the one that appears to Abraham and makes covenant with him. These are two cross-references where we can see that it is Yeshua, the Messiah, who makes covenant with Abraham. One more connection and cross-reference that we can see is Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, which says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to your seed after you. Verse 8, And I will give unto you and into your seed after you the land where you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, it quotes Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. Galatians 3, 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. It points out here that in Genesis 17, verse 7, it does not say seeds, plural, as of many, but it says seed, referring to Yeshua, the Messiah. And then in Galatians 3.29 it says, If you be Messiahs, then are you Abraham's seed, and you are an heir of the promise that was made to Abraham. So we've made three cross-references where we can see that it's Yeshua that makes the covenant with Abraham, and we are heirs of that covenant that Yeshua made with Abraham by being believers in him. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, and in making the covenant with Abraham, this is what was communicated to Abraham. Genesis 15, verse 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep, which we examined in detail last week, where we studied and saw that this is a reference to the descendants of Abraham going into spiritual slumber. And so what's happening to Abraham is a prophecy of what will happen to his descendants. And lo, a whore of great darkness fell upon him. And last week we saw that the rabbinical commentary, the great darkness was a reference to the descendants of Abraham going into exile. 
Verse 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. In other words, they will go into exile, and being scattered in exile, those are lands that are not theirs. The land that is given to the descendants of Abraham is the land of Israel. And they will serve them, and the reason why they're being sent into those lands and serving is because of disobedience to Torah. And they shall afflict them 400 years. In other words, the peoples where the descendants of Abraham are going to be exiled ultimately are not going to treat them well. And history has proven this to be the case. Genesis 15 verse 14, And also that nation whom they will serve will I judge. This is an allusion to that when the God of Israel redeems his people from the nations where they've been scattered, that he will judge those nations. And afterward they will come out, that is the prophecy of being redeemed from exile, with great substance. Moses is called because of the covenant that Yeshua made with Abraham. Once again, we can see the covenant in Genesis 17, verse 7, is made between Yeshua and Abraham. The promise in verse 8 is that the descendants of Abraham would be given the land of Canaan. Now, Moses is called on behalf of and because of the covenant that the Messiah made with Abraham. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says, It came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. The God of Israel is calling Moses because of the covenant that was made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In that context, it says in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land. Notice when you're leaving Egypt, you're coming up out of Egypt. You're making an ascension. Whenever there's a reference to being in Egypt or going to Egypt, the scripture always says going down to Egypt. But when you leave Egypt, you come up out of Egypt because you are ascending to a higher place. That is the land of Israel. Into a good land, in a large land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The God of Israel redeemed his people out of Egypt for the purpose that they would be his people and that they would serve him. So in Exodus chapter 3 verses 11 and 12 it says, Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you and this shall be the sign or the token unto you that I've sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you will serve God upon this mountain. He redeemed his people out of Egypt so that they could serve him. The place where you serve him is on the mountain. And what happened on the mountain? That is where he gave commandments to his people. How do you serve the God of Israel? You do it by keeping his commandments. Now let's look at some of the detailed events of the Passover. In Exodus chapter 5 verses 1 through 3, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, he has met with the God of Israel. He makes a request to Pharaoh from 
the mouth of the God of Israel to let his people go. Exodus 5.1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. This is Passover. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So the request to Pharaoh was specifically to be able to go three days' journey into the desert to hold a festival unto the God of Israel. In the context of this, the God of Israel commanded the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3 and verse 6, these words, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. That lamb was to be kept from the tenth day of the month, which is Aviv, until the fourteenth day of the month of Aviv. And on that day, they were to kill the lamb. Now, we need to recognize that one of the things that the God of Israel is doing under Pharaoh and the Egyptians is he's judging the gods of this world, which are not gods. They are idols of men and idols of men's hearts. In Egypt, sheep were worshipped by the Egyptian society as an Egyptian god. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 25 through 27, it says, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. We're going to sacrifice a sheep. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? If we sacrifice a lamb, the Egyptians are going to be so upset with us that their anger will be such that they'll want to kill us. It is dangerous to sacrifice this lamb in that society. It's not politically correct. And we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. Now, we can see, not only from the scripture which we just quoted, but in Midrash Rabbah, Exodus 16.3, the rabbis make mention that in Egypt, that sheep were regarded as Egyptian gods. The Midrash says these words, When the Holy One, blessed be he, told Moses to slay the Paschal, or the Passover lamb, Moses answered, Lord of the universe, how can I possibly do this thing? Do you not know that the lamb is an Egyptian god, as it says? If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Exodus chapter 8, verse 26. So God replies, As you live, Israel will not depart from here before they slaughter the Egyptian gods before their very eyes, that I may teach them that their gods are really nothing at all. 
This is what God actually did. For on that night, he slew the Egyptian firstborn. And on that night, the Israelites slaughtered their Paschal or their Passover lamb and ate it. When the Egyptians beheld their firstborn slain and their God slaughtered, they could do nothing, as it says. While the Egyptians were burying them, that the Lord had smitten among them, even all their firstborn, upon their gods also, the Lord executed judgment. Part of the requirement of the God of Israel was that the blood of the Passover lamb that was slain was to be put on the doorpost. Exodus chapter 12 verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Egypt is a place of bondage. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says, It came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Then in Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, it is written, And I have heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Egypt is a place of bondage, and this is a spiritual picture unto us that Egypt is a type of the world and the world system. We can see the analogy of Egypt to the ways of the world from Isaiah in chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt, and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame, and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. So they're talking about going down to Egypt, putting their trust in Pharaoh, for when you do that, you're not putting your trust in the God of Israel. So Egypt and Pharaoh and putting your trust in them is opposite to putting your trust in the God of Israel. So therefore, Egypt and Pharaoh represents putting your trust in the world, the world system, and the ways of man, the ways of the flesh. In Isaiah chapter 31, verses 1 and 3, this principle is also communicated. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Now the Egyptians are men and not God and their horses flesh and not spirit. Here it describes about trusting in the chariots of Egypt. So that's trusting in the world and the world system and what seems logical in the context of the world and its ways. It says because they are very strong. In other words, the natural system has contained within it things that 
They say that if you do, you can keep yourself out of problems, out of trouble, and you need to do the wisdom of those things because they are strong. But that is opposite from trusting in the ways of the God of Israel because his ways are not the ways of man. When we look at the children of Israel being in bondage or the principle of bondage, bondage comes about when we do not follow the Torah. We can see this from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 22 and 24, and it says, But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivers for a spoil, and none says restore. Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his Torah. Notice that when the people of the God of Israel are not obedient to his Torah, it is said of them that they end up in a prison house. Why? Because not obeying the Torah is sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whosoever commits sin transgresses the Torah, for sin is the transgression of the Torah. Yeshua said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. So transgressing the Torah, which is sin, causes us to get in the bondage and bondage is our prison house trusting in pharaoh represents serving the gods of this world isaiah chapter 36 verse 6 says lo thou trust in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, where if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all those that trust in him. Jeremiah chapter 46 verse 25 says, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will punish the multitude of Pharaoh in Egypt with their gods and their kings, even Pharaoh in all them that trust in him. If you're trusting in the world, the world's ways and the world's system, which is trusting in Pharaoh and Egypt, the God of Israel says, ultimately, you are under my judgment. Yeshua is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, Behold, the Lamb of God, referring to Yeshua the Messiah, who takes away the sin of the world. Yeshua is our Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Yeshua, our Passover, he is sacrificed for us. The children of Israel were commanded to take the Passover lamb and to bring it into their houses beginning on the 10th day of the first month, Aviv 10, and then up through Aviv 14. What's the spiritual meaning and application? It's that the believers of the Messiah are his house. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6 says, But Messiah as a son over his own house, who's his own house that he's a son over? The house of Jacob. There's a literal house of Jacob that he's a son over, and there's a redeemed house of Jacob who he's a son over. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as lively stones, are built up a 
spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God by Yeshua HaMashiach. The doorpost that we put the blood on personifies and represents a circumcised heart. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Then in Philippians chapter 3 verse 3 it says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Yeshua HaMashiach and have no confidence in the flesh. The spiritual circumcision is of our heart. So we put the blood of Yeshua and we apply it to our hearts or we apply it to our lives. The blood of Yeshua redeems us from sin. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Mashiach. Ephesians 1 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Messiah as a lamb without blemish, the requirement of that lamb back in Egypt and without spot. Redemption comes through the outstretched arm of the God of Israel. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. He redeems his people with a stretched out arm. In Hebrew, where it mentions about the arm, it's the Hebrew word Zeroah. And it means the arm, the forearm, it represents strength. Exodus chapter 6 verse 7. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. When you have a Passover Seder, the shank bone on your plate the name given for that shank bone is Zeroah, or arm. This is a reference to Yeshua the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm, who has the Zeroah of the Lord been revealed? Yeshua is referred to as the Zeroah, the arm of the God of Israel. That shank bone, once again, on the Passover Seder plate, is called in Hebrew a Zeroah. That is a picture of Yeshua the Messiah. In the events of Passover, there are ten plagues that the God of Israel puts upon the Egyptians in judging them. And following these ten plagues, the children of Israel then leave Egypt on their way to Mount Sinai and then the promised land. In leaving Egypt, Israel ultimately camps by the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 14, 
verses 1 through 3, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn and encamp before me by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he pursues the children of Israel after letting them go. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 7, it says, And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. He's taken his whole army and pursuing the children of Israel. And at this point in time, the children of Israel grow frightened. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10 says, And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. But Moses stands up, and he says these words. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, Moses said unto the people, Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. The word here for salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. It is the Strong's number 3444. And Yeshua in Hebrew means salvation, it means deliverance, it means victory, it means prosperity. See the deliverance, see the victory, see the salvation, see the Yeshua of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. Pharaoh and his army, in pursuing the children of Israel, they end up drowning in the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 4 says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's chariots and his host has he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 1 when it says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song, with the defeat of Pharaoh and his army and with them drowning in the sea, the children of Israel and Moses sing a song of praise unto the God of Israel. What they say and how they praise the God of Israel, this is known as the Song of Moses. The deliverance for the children of Israel from Egypt comes about with a song. Since, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7 says, that the things that are written are written about to teach us about Yeshua the Messiah. His deliverance is also likened unto a song. One of the great messianic works of the Messiah is the role of the Messiah to restore and to regather both houses of Israel, the house of Jacob who have been exiled in the nations, return them back to the land of Israel, that being done with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and it's attributed to the work of the Messiah. That is why, therefore, in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, it says that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is the work of the Messiah, and his work is associated with 
the redemption from Egypt and that song of Moses. You see the parallel words here in Revelation 15 verse 3 that they're saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. This is analogous to the words that were said in Exodus chapter 15 verse 11, which is a part of every traditional Sabbath service. It is known as Mika Mocha. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? The defeat of Pharaoh and him drowning in the sea, Pharaoh is a type of Hasatan, the type of Satan or the devil. Ezekiel chapter 29 verse 3 says, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the rivers. Pharaoh is called a great dragon. It's the Hebrew word tanin. It's the Strong's number 8577. Well, in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, Satan, Hasatan, is also called a great dragon. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. This Hebrew word tanim means a dragon, it means a serpent, it means a sea monster. Pharaoh is also a type of the sea monster, the mythical sea monster known and given the name of Leviathan. Psalm 74 verses 12 through 14 says, For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You did divide the sea by your strength, referring back to the Red Sea. You broke the heads, plural, of the dragons in the waters. Dragons, Tanim. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and you gave him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. The defeat is associated with Leviathan, who is a sea monster or a dragon, and he has many heads. Pharaoh is also a type of the false messiah. We can make this association by looking at first, reminding us of Ezekiel 29 verse 3. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the waters. And then Psalm 74 verse 13 says, you did divide the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the dragons in the water. Notice the dragon or the sea monster in the waters has many heads. Now, Revelation chapter 13 verse 1 says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast, Leviathan, rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Pharaoh also represents pride and the judgment of pride. Ezekiel 29 verse 3 says regarding Pharaoh that he's not only the great dragon that lies in the midst of the rivers, but Pharaoh says, my river is my own and I have made it for myself. He does not acknowledge the God of Israel. He says, no, I've made this. I've done this. A statement of pride. There's a reference to Leviathan in Job chapter 41, and it's said about Leviathan that he's king over all the children of pride. Job chapter 41 verse 1 says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord which you let down? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? He beholds all high things. He is king over all the children of pride. Job 41 verse 34. Pharaoh represents 
pride, which is also spoken as a reference to Leviathan. It is the right hand or the arm that defeated Pharaoh and his army at the sea. Exodus chapter 15 verse 1 says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. Your right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed in pieces the enemy. Who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. So it tells us in Exodus 15, verse 6, in Exodus 15, verse 12, that the victory came about through the right hand that defeated the enemy. Exodus chapter 15, verse 6. Who is the right hand or the arm? It is a reference to Yeshua the Messiah. Psalm chapter 44, verses 2 and 3 says, How you did drive out the heathen with your hand, and you planted them. That's referring to Egypt. You, you drove out the heathen, and you planted them. You brought them into the land of Israel. How thou did afflict your people and cast them out. That's referring to judging his people after they were brought into the promised land and broke the covenant. Psalm 44 verse 3. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword. That is referring to the events in the book of Joshua. Neither did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm in the light of your countenance, because you had favor unto them. Psalm 98, verse 1. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among gods, doing wonders? He's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm has gotten him the victory. It's Yeshua the Messiah that makes covenant with Abraham. He's the one that brought victory for the children of Israel. He's the one that defeated Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. The children of Israel, when they went into Egypt, the Bible tells us that when they initially went down into Egypt, that they took upon themselves the status of being servants unto Pharaoh. We see this from Genesis chapter 47, verse 1, and then verse 4, which says, Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. They said, Moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come, to come into Egypt, to settle in Goshen. For your servants, they're calling themselves the servants of Pharaoh, have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is sore in the land of Canaan, from which they came. Now therefore we pray thee, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Being referred to as servants of Pharaoh, it says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 13, And Pharaoh made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. We need to understand the spiritual principle that when the God of Israel redeems us from Egypt, which is the type of the world and the world system, where we have been serving Pharaoh, that the only way that we can do the will of the God of Israel in our lives, Pharaoh has to die. In other words, the flesh has to die. We have to get the world and the world system out of us. 
Pharaoh has to die in order to go into the promised land. In Exodus chapter 15 verse 4 it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host has he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. Now what was the purpose of the God of Israel bringing his people out of Egypt? Even though he initially told Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people take a three days journey into the wilderness it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 23 that he brought us out from there that is Egypt that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swear unto our fathers that is the land of Canaan Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says know you not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or obedience under righteousness. We're servants of sin, which brings death, or we're servants of righteousness. We are servants of something. We just are commanded by the God of Israel to make the right choice. But living in this world, we are a servant of something. We are not a people free unto ourselves. We're either serving sin, Pharaoh, in the world and the world system, or we're serving the God of Israel. Now, what we want to do in looking at the events of Passover and seeing the application to our lives and how we serve the God of Israel, we're going to see and we're going to make a parallel to the parable that Yeshua told us about, the sower that sows the word. And we're going to draw that parallel to the events that happened when Moses goes to Pharaoh and requests to let his people go. Let's begin to see this parallel. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and then verse 18, it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. Verse 18, And they shall hearken unto your voice, and ye shall come, you and the elders of Israel, and you will go unto the king of Egypt, that is Pharaoh, and say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now let us go, we beseech you, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Here, the will of the God of Israel is known. Moses knows it. He is now to go to Pharaoh and say, Let my people go. Remember, Yeshua said about the parable of the sower that sows the word. How is it that you don't know this parable? How will you know any parables? For the entire kingdom of God is likened unto this principle of this parable. When the God of Israel tells Moses what his will is for Moses to do. This is comparable to the sower, who is the servant of Yahweh, which in this case is Moses, who sows the word or does the will of the God of Israel. He goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. In Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Moses goes to Pharaoh and by the word of the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me and let us go three days journey to sacrifice unto the God of Israel. What happens next is Pharaoh rejects 
the word of the God of Israel. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, the God of Israel tells Moses, he says, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. That's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. That is what happens in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. What did Yeshua says in the parable of the sower sows the word? What did he say what would happen after the word was sown? Mark chapter 4, verse 15. These are they by the wayside where the word is sown. When they have heard, Satan comes immediately to take away the word that was sown in their hearts. The God of Israel says, let my people go. Moses is obeying. Pharaoh comes and says, nope. I'm not going to let him go. He's coming to tell Moses what the God of Israel told you. I'm not going to permit. He's coming to take away that word. Let my people go. Next, what happens is persecution arises to test the word of the God of Israel. In Exodus chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, this is what Pharaoh says and how he responded to the words, let my people go. And the taskmasters of the people went out and their officers and they spake to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get you straw where you can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. In other words, you're not going to be given what you need to do your work, yet your productivity is not going to fall. In Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, but they have no root in themselves, they endure for a time. Here's the principle, after the word is sown, afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake. What was the response? Pharaoh persecuted the children of Israel on behalf of the word, let my people go. And he says, I'm not going to give you straw to do your work, but yet you're going to keep your productivity without the straw. So affliction or persecution arose on behalf of the word. As a result of this, the children of Israel become offended because now they have to continue their work, but they don't have what they need to do their work. Exodus chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 says, And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were in an evil case. After it was said of them, You shall not diminish your bricks for your daily task. And they met Moses and Aaron who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said unto him, The Lord look upon you and judge because you have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. What does it say in Mark 4.17? When affliction and persecution arises for the word's sake, those who have no root, in other words, those that do not believe the word and will stand with the word, they become offended. This is what happened to the children of Israel. They go to Moses and say, hey, look what's happened to us. This is not good. Why did you do this? Then what happens is the one who has received the word, Moses, he then questions the word or the will of the God of Israel, that which is known, that which the God of Israel has declared. So in Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore have you so evil entreated this people? Why is it that you sent me? Why am I seeking to obey you? When I obey you, things are not going right. I'm doing what you told me to do. And look, everything's falling apart. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither has he delivered your people at all. Which is 
what you said I'm sending you to do, so that he would deliver. He hasn't delivered us. In fact, he's made our situation worse. This is spiritual principles of the kingdom. Ultimately, then, those who's going to obey the God of Israel, they have to continue to be obedient even when it does not make logical sense. This is what Moses does. First, when he asks the question in Exodus chapter 8, verse 26, it is not meat to do so, that is to sacrifice a lamb, for shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God? Lo, shall we sacrifice it before their eyes? And will they not stone us? In other words, if I obey the God of Israel, things are going to be bad for me. I am going to get killed if I obey. Look what Moses says in the next verse. However, we will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he shall command us. In other words, this does not make any sense at all. But we got to obey him anyhow. This is how the entire kingdom of God operates. When you seek to obey him, you'll get to the place where by obeying him, things won't make sense to you. And that's where you got to persevere and go on. In believing and doing the will of the God of Israel, the enemy begins then to offer compromise to you. Exodus chapter 8 verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God, he tells Moses, but only you, Moses, can go. But when you go, don't go very far and then come back to me. First he says, I'm not going to let you go at all. And then he begins to offer compromise. Moses, I'll let you go. But is that what the God of Israel said? No, he wants the whole nation to come out. Moses is offered a compromise proposal. Then the God of Israel confirms his word. So that's what's going to happen. You seek to do his will. The enemy will come, try to take the word away. He'll offer you compromise, but you'll get word back to you to confirm what he originally told you. In Exodus chapter 9 verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God your Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now wait a second, Moses just did this and things got worse. God comes back and says, now go do it again. Well, the last time he did it, things got worse. Where is the encouragement for Moses to go and obey God when the last time he obeyed God, things got worse? In his logical mind, if we obey the God of Israel, the Egyptians are going to kill us. This is what will happen as you're believing and walking in the ways of the God of Israel. As you persevere in the ways of the God of Israel, the enemy will offer more compromise. Exodus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11 says, And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? You can go, but who's got to go? Moses said, Okay, we will go with our young, with our old, our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds, to hold a feast unto the God of Israel. Pharaoh replies and says, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, Moses, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. In other words, if your little ones go, it's going to be bad for them. The little ones shouldn't go. Next verse, not so. Go now, you that are men, and serve the Lord your God. For that you did desire, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Okay, your little ones, it's got to be too harmful for them to go. It's too dangerous. Moses, you can go, and all the men. Pharaoh, after that request, it's turned down, because that's not what the God of Israel says. Pharaoh offers more compromise. Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Now, go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds stay behind. Your little ones can go with you. 
Moses said, Thou must give us also the sacrifices and the burnt offerings. So they need the flocks and the herds that we may sacrifice on the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not a hoof be left behind, for therefore must we take to serve the Lord our God, and we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we go there. So he says, Okay, Moses, you can go, the men can go, the children will go, but not your cattle. Here we see the progression of the compromises which the enemy makes when we seek to obey the God of Israel and to do his will. We see the progression. First, Pharaoh said in Exodus 5.2, I will not let the children of Israel go. In Exodus 8.28, he says, only Moses can go. But then in Exodus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11, he says, only the men can go. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 24 through 26, he says, only the men and the children can go. But ultimately, after the death of the firstborn, who is let go? Men, women, children, and the cattle, the original request. We see that ultimately the will of the God of Israel will come to pass, but not without affliction and persecution and the enemy offering compromise and God of Israel confirming his word and we standing upon that, then we will see the victory. That is exactly what Yeshua spoke about in the parable of the sower that sows the word. But even after now we're doing the will of the God of Israel, the men, women, children, and the cattle go, the enemy is still upset with us because when he sees that by doing the will of the God of Israel that we get what he perceives to be in a corner, then he'll still continue to pursue you and then when he even then continues to pursue you as Pharaoh and his army pursued the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 14 verses 5 through 9 ultimately the final defeat of the enemy comes about when you see the power of the God of Israel as he drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea Exodus chapter 15 and verse 4 Ultimately, Pharaoh lets the children of Israel go after the death of the firstborn, Exodus chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Notice how much time and effort it took for ultimately the word and the will of the God of Israel to come to pass. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, For you have need of patience after you have done the will of God that you may receive the promise. Why do you need patience? Because it will take patience to see the promise of the word of God come to pass. Ultimately, when it does come to pass, you see the fruit. But notice it described the affliction and the persecution before you saw the harvest. The harvest is Mark chapter 4, verse 20. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. When we do the will of the God of Israel, he will then take us to the promised land, which is fulfilling the promises that he ultimately made unto us. Because once Pharaoh and his army drowned in the Red Sea, Exodus chapter 15, verse 4, then the children of Israel were free to go to Mount Sinai and thus to the promised land. Deuteronomy 6.23, he brought us out that he might bring us in to give us a land that he swear unto our fathers. Now the last principle that we're going to look at and looking at the events of Passover in this session is we're going to look at the two signs that the God of Israel gave to Moses to affirm that he was sent. And this is found in Exodus in chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 verse 1 begins with these words. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord has not appeared unto you. The parallel with what Moses said, how he would be received, 
is similar to what Yeshua said regarding him, him being the greater Moses. John chapter 4, verse 48, Yeshua said unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. They won't believe unless they see a sign. Because the people won't believe unless they see a sign, the God of Israel gives two signs to Moses. Exodus chapter 4, verse 8, it says, It will come to pass, if they will not believe you, nor hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe in the voice of the latter sign. Remember the principle. The events that are happening historically are prophecies of what will happen to future descendants. It's all about the work of the Messiah. These two signs, the first sign, in the latter sign that we're going to look at, we're going to ultimately understand that the first sign represents the resurrection of the Messiah. The second sign represents the restoration and the regathering of both houses of Israel. These are the two major signs that the God of Israel gives to his people so that they would know who is the Messiah. So let's look at the first sign of Moses. Exodus chapter 4 verse 12. The Lord said unto him, What is in your hand? And he said, A rod. The Hebrew word rod is matah or Mateh, and it is the Strong's number 4294. The rod represents the Messiah. How can we see this? Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is quoted by Yeshua himself, and also in Hebrews it's quoted referring to the Messiah. But we can further see it by what is said in the context. The Lord will send the rod of your strength out of Zion, and he will rule in the midst of your enemies. He's sending the rod. And the word rod here in Psalm 110 verse 2 is Mateh. The Strong's number 4294. Psalm 110 verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who? The Lord that's saying to my Lord. Who? The rod that is ruling out of Zion. Verse 5. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Who's the right hand that is judging the earth? It's the Messiah. Then in Psalm 110 verse 6, He will judge among the heathen. He will fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. Who's the one that's judging the heathen? The Messiah. He's judging them just like he judged Egypt and the gods of Egypt historically. The next thing what happens is Moses flees from the serpent, which previously was a rod when he threw it to the ground. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 3, he said, cast it, cast the rod to the ground. That is a prophecy of the death of Yeshua. And he cast it to the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from before it. This is a prophecy that Yeshua, being the rod, he was cast to the ground. He became sin, cast to the ground for us. Numbers chapter 21 verse 8 says, The Lord said to Moses, Make you a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it will come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. Yeshua referred to this and said that's a picture of him. John chapter 3 verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man is likened unto a serpent that got put on a pole. The serpent represents death and sin. Well, that's because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 it says of Yeshua he was made sin for us and he himself did not know any sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him Exodus chapter 4 verse 3 after the rod was cast to the ground became a serpent then it says Moses fled from before it that's a prophecy 
Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 and 42 says, Likewise, the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders, these are the rulers of the nation of Israel, said these words, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If you are the king of Israel, if you are the Messiah, let him now come down from the tree, and then we will believe him. They didn't believe, so they fled from before him. Also, Moses is a picture of the Torah and what happened by the believers that did believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. What did they do to the Torah following the days of the first century and then getting into the days of Constantine? They fled from before Moses. They fled from following the Torah. So it's a prophecy about rejecting the Messiah and rejecting the Torah is the prophetic meaning of Moses fled from before it. Then what happens is the serpent is restored to a rod. Exodus chapter 4 verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, put forth your hand and take it by the tail and he put forth his hand and he caught it and it became a rod notice it was restored back to what it originally was what happens Yeshua after he was cast to the ground after he was put on a tree he was restored to glory In Acts chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whom you slew and hung on a tree. He has exalted with his right hand to be the prince and the savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Look it unto Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the tree, despising the shame, and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is restored back to that rod. The rod represents authority. The first sign then is the resurrection of the Messiah. The first sign of Moses. Matthew chapter 12 verse 38. Certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master we would seek a sign from you. And so he says in Matthew 12 verse 40, the only sign I'm going to give you is this. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The purpose of the first sign is that they would believe. Exodus chapter 4 verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared unto you. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, it says that if you will confess with your mouth Yeshua HaMashiach and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved or delivered. Now let's look at the second sign of Moses. It's beginning in Exodus chapter 4 verse 6. This second sign has got to be a reference to the restoration or gathering of both houses of Israel. Let's examine how this is so. The Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand became leprous. The second sign is leprosy. And in Midrash Rabbah, Numbers 7, 3, in the rabbinical commentary, they're going to explain that exile is a punishment for having leprosy. Referring to the leper that they send out the camp every leper. You find that just as a mortal king has army chiefs, so God has army chiefs, as it says, take ye the sum of the congregation of the children of Israel. That's from Numbers chapter 1, verse 2. A mortal king has exile for those condemned to punishment. God also has a place of exile for those condemned to punishment, as it says that they send out of the camp every leper. Numbers chapter 5, verse 2. So Midrash Rabbah, Numbers 7.10 goes on to say, another exposition of Numbers chapter 5 verse 2, that is the sending out of the leper. It says, command the children of Israel. The rabbis explain the verse as applying to exile. Command the children of Israel as if to say, because Israel has transgressed the commandment. They have incurred the penalty of being sent away. That is exile. 
Leprosy is a punishment for not obeying the commandments or departing from Torah. Hence it is written, and let them send away from the camp. Send away has the meaning of exile. As you read, send them out of my sight and let them go forth. Jeremiah 15 verse 1. Out of the camp, that is, out of the land of Israel, where the Shekinah has its presence. And Midrash Rabbah Numbers 710, we have likewise learned exile comes in the world for idolatry, for immorality, for bloodshed, and for the neglect of the septennial rest of the land. For idolatry. How is this so? Because it says in Leviticus 26 verse 30, and I will destroy your high places. And it's also written, I will scatter you among the nations. Leviticus 26 33. Said the omnipresent to Israel, seeing that you have a desire for idolatry, I shall on my part exile you to a place where there is idolatry. Therefore, I will destroy your high places for immorality. How is this so? Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Jose, says, So long as Israel are sunk in immorality, the Shekinah keeps away from them, as it says, that he see no immoral thing in you, that is the camp of Israel, and turn from you. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 13. For bloodshed, how is this so? Since the text says, So you shall not pollute the land. For blood, it pollutes the land. Numbers 35, verse 33. Scripture tells us that bloodshed defiles the land and the Shekinah departs. Moreover, on the count of bloodshed, the temple was destroyed and Israel went from their land into exile. The above sins, that is idolatry and bloodshed, and immorality were committed in the time of the first temple and therefore Israel were exiled and the temple was destroyed. How does leprosy get healed? It gets healed through repentance. In Midrash Rabbah Numbers chapter 7 verse 10 it says, And the children of Israel did so from Numbers chapter 5 verse 4 and they put them out without the camp. When they sinned they went into exile as the Lord spoke unto Moses, so did the children of Israel. What did the Holy One, blessed be he, speak to Moses? That if they repent, while in any of the kingdoms where they might be, the Holy One, blessed be he, would gather them together, as it says, it will come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, and you shall return and hearken unto his voice, that the Lord your God will bring you into the land, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Making a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Midrash Rabbah, Numbers 7.10. So did the children of Israel indicate that the children of Israel are destined to repent in days to come and will be redeemed, as it says, in repentance and in rest you will be saved. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Moreover, as a leper, one that has an issue and one that is unclean by the dead, will never be clean until they go into a ritually clean water. So the Holy One, blessed be He, will sprinkle clean water upon them and cleanse them. As it says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Now in Luke chapter 17, we have an account where Yeshua heals 10 lepers. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11 through 14. It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And he entered into a certain village. There he met 10 men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Yeshua, Master, 
Have mercy upon us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. In other words, if you want to be healed, go show yourself to the priest. If you do that, you follow Torah. And it came to pass as they went, as they went to the priest, as they followed Torah, that they were cleansed. Luke 17, verses 15 through 28. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Turned back, that means repented, yeshuva. The one that was healed, in other words, saved, turned back, followed Torah. And the one that turned back with a loud voice glorified God. What is associated with the restoration or regathering of both houses of Israel? It comes about with the sound of a great shofar, which is a teruah, which is a loud voice. So the one that turned back and followed Torah is the one that glorified him because he's regathered. Luke 17, 16, he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, for he was a Samaritan. Who are the Samaritans? They are the people that was a mixture of the northern kingdom and those who conquered the northern kingdom, the Assyrians. The mixture, the intermingling of them were the Samaritans in the land of Israel. Yeshua answered, were there not ten clans? Where are the other nine? There is not found that returned to give glory to God except this stranger. Notice the one that returns after they were saved, have mercy upon us. The ten that were saved, only one returned, that in Hebrew is shuv, repent, and he came back to give glory to God. The glory of God is associated with the restoration, regathering of both houses of Israel. And once again, this one is called a stranger. Let's see how the ten lepers are referred to that Yeshua healed. They were Samaritans, Luke 17, 16. They were ten leopards, Luke 17, 12. They stood afar off, Luke 17, verse 12. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 7, the northern kingdom is described as being far off. And they were strangers. Why and how were they strangers? Because in Hosea 1, they were cut off from the covenant. And once you're cut off from the covenant, you are a stranger. This is a picture that Yeshua is communicating that those of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, would ultimately be healed of their leprosy departing from the covenant and it shows his role to restore them unto him leprosy is healed through repentance exodus chapter 4 verse 7 he said put your hand in your bosom again that's the strong's number 7725 the hebrew word shuv which means to return to repent put your hand again repent and he put his hand into his bosom again repented he plucked it out of his bosom, and behold, it was turned again as is under flesh. Notice the way it got restored was through shuv, through repentance. So the second sign is the resurrection of Israel from the nations. Isaiah 66, verses 19 and 20 says, And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, pull lead that draw the bow, to Tubal and Havan, to the isles afar off the children of israel were scattered to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame nor seen my glory and they would declare my glory among the gentiles and they shall bring of your brethren for an offering unto the lord out of all the nations upon horses and chariots and litters and mules and upon swift beasts to the holy mountain of jerusalem why are they coming to the holy mountain of Jerusalem? Because what goes forth out of Jerusalem? The Torah goes forth from Jerusalem. So they're returning the Torah. So they're coming to this holy mountain. Why? To serve him. You're going to serve him upon the mountain. Come to Jerusalem to serve him. That is to be a king and a priest with Messiah, teaching the Torah to all nations. That's why we're going to come back to Jerusalem, is to be a king and a priest and to make disciples of all nations during the Messianic era. Says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel unto the house of the Lord. 
Let's look at, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 8, when it speaks about the two signs, because it's very unique in the Hebrew, because the word for sign is the Strong's number 226. It's the Hebrew word oat, and the normal spelling of oat is aleph, vav, tav. That's the normal spelling. However, when referring to the sign in Exodus chapter 4, verse 8, as you can see here from the Hebrew text, it does not say aleph, vav, and tav. It only says aleph and tav. Aleph and tav is the Messiah. The sign is the Messiah. The first sign of the Messiah is his resurrection. The second sign of the Messiah is his rule to restore and to regather both houses of of Israel. It's referred to as the sign. The hay in front of Aleph and Tav is the sign. So these are the two signs. What are the two great signs of the Messiah? One, that he resurrected from the grave to forgive the sins of Israel. Second, the role of the Messiah to restore and to regather both houses of Israel. These are the two great signs of Moses. This is an example how the events that happened in the historical Egyptian redemption is a prophecy of what would happen to the descendants of Abraham and how all these things teach us about the redemptive role of Yeshua the Messiah. I pray once again that this message has been a blessing to you. We will be continuing our studies and examining Passover in the ensuing lessons. In concluding this message, let us always remember what we are told in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that he who believes in Yeshua the Messiah ought to walk even as he walked. Shalom in Messiah.